All right. Uh, thank you for being here. My name is Rick Donlin, and that's the signal to start the tape. I, you know, I think we're fine the way we are. Thank you, though. Um, yeah, here's our topic, and let's dive in. Um, so I use the slides to help me remember what to say to you. I hope they are sometimes amusing. They're amusing to at least one person. The, this is to... Um, make the point that who is this bozo who's talking about missionary attrition? Um, I have never worked long-term overseas. I wonder if you have been an overseas missionary, cross-cultural missionary. Could you raise your hand? Okay. If you're thinking about that, planning to go overseas, could I see your hand? Okay. Well, um, my interest in attrition is um, years and years, starting from the time I was in traditional evangelical churches and Saw people leave and maybe not do so well. We're gonna, I'm going to tell you some of those stories. And for the last seven or eight years, I've been a leader in a house church network in Memphis, and we've sent a number of people overseas. And um, our health center that we work, I work at a nonprofit Christian health center in Memphis. We've sent a number of physicians and other healthcare workers. And so I'm keenly interested now in what it is um, that will keep people on the field for the long term and what are the main barriers to long-term missionary service. So that's what this is about, and um, that's who the bozo is who's talking to you. Okay. So here's one of my stories. Um, probably 15 years ago when I was going to uh, a large evangelical church in suburban Memphis with my wife and my family, um, there was a young couple who one of them had been to Christian college, and they'd met. They'd been to the Urbana Conference on World Missions and been through the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement course, and they had felt a call to go to Indonesia, <clears throat> excuse me, and they spent the requisite amount of time, probably a year and a half or more, raising support. Sometimes they would come through church in Indonesian garb, and we rallied behind them. We were excited. They were young, smart people, college-educated, motivated, serious disciples, and they went to Indonesia. But less than a year and a half later, they were back in the United States, and in that case, as best we could tell, the issue primarily had to do with the husband of the husband and wife and his inability to really feel like he was working out his gifts and using his call in that setting. Unfortunately, the wife was thriving. She loved it and was having a great time. But we had a mismatch there and their agency, and they elected to, to come back. Probably some of you in the audience have a similar story. You've seen that happen. And it's fraught with problems in our world because these were folks from our church and our church and individuals in our church supported them. But they worked for an agency. And so when they left the field, you weren't exactly sure who to talk to. or It was, it was just an awkward situation. When missionaries leave, it's problematic, right? So we're going to talk about preventable attrition. There are good reasons why people leave the field. They finish, they retire. They finish their term of service or their, um, their duties. They get kicked out of a country by a bad government, an unfriendly government. Um, hopefully they don't get killed. Those are reasons that you can, uh, you can have normal attrition that's expected. What we're talking about today is preventable, undesired attrition. People leaving the mission field before their sending agency or their sending church thinks they ought to do it. And so that's measured. The, the thing you're going to hear me saying several times is PAR, preventable attrition rate, the rate per year of missionaries leaving the field. Right. To prepare for this talk, which was really a lot of fun for me, I got to talk to some really smart people. And I want to say especially thank you to the um, Presbyterian Church of America's uh, Mission to the World, to the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, to church resource ministries. There were people at those agencies who were very, very helpful talking to me about their screening and their preparation and their on-the-field care for missionaries. There's a book. I'm going to show you a picture of it in a minute. If you're interested in this subject, probably the most important book that you can get on Amazon, because that's where I got it, is called Too Valuable to Lose. It's edited by a, former, by a missionary named William Taylor. And probably the most important information in that book is the so-called REMAP-1 study. I'm going to tell you about that in just a second. This is the book. It's um, a compilation of essays from missionary senders and missionaries from across the world, not just the United States. The REMAP study, REMAP 1 and 2, Reducing Missionary Attrition is what REMAP stands for, and it began in the mid-1990s. And it began out of a feeling from a number of missionary agencies that we were losing more and more people. 
people were leaving the field early, and we wanted to know why. So the World Evangelical Fellowship sort of spearheaded it, and they gathered data. The follow-through study was done eight years later in 2003. Most of what I'm going to share with you is from Remap 1, but we'll have some Remap 2 stuff also. All right, so first thing they did is they got a bunch of smart missions people from around the world to come together. They came up with about 25 or 26 reasons people might leave. All right, and they put together a questionnaire using those basic reasons, and they gave it to mission agencies. And that's important to hear. It wasn't the missionaries themselves who were filling out the questionnaire. They weren't answering the questions for themselves. It was the perceived, at least, reason from the missionary sending agency's point of view of why people left. So keep that in mind. Fourteen countries. They broke it down into so-called old sending countries, and we're one of those, and the new sending countries, especially from the emerging Christian South. So... For the purposes of our discussion today, I'm going to talk about the USA data, but the overall data is over 40,000 missionaries. So not a small data set, right? A lot of information. Now, um, I've only seen this show a couple of times, Dr. House. I have some patients who call me Dr. House, and I don't think that's a compliment. Um, but... Um, in the shows that I've seen, you know, there's the apparent diagnosis at first, and then they, things aren't quite what they seem, and they go through two or three diagnoses, and you have to get through all of the clinical information. That's the case with the, with the remap data. It's fraught with um, confusion, right, and interpretation. And this is going to be participatory, meaning that in a few minutes I'm going to start asking questions I hope you'll really answer, particularly some of you who are missionaries. Another one of my stories. I told you that I work in a nonprofit Christian health center. I also have a couple of adopted daughters, and I was running in circles of people who did international adoption. So a young missionary couple who was back from Russia came to see me with their adopted children. They were unable to conceive, and they subsequently adopted two children. They'd been back and forth from a very difficult part of the easternmost part of Russia, and there was a little bit of frustration from their agency and even from people back in Memphis about why they were, were or weren't on the field. And the wife of the family brought me the young adopted boy, mixed-race boy, African-American and Anglo kid, and she pointed out to me a little freckle that he had on his abdomen. And she spun that out to tell me in a pretty short period of time that she was persuaded the little boy had von Recklinghausen disease, that he had a disease called neurofibromatosis. She wasn't a healthcare worker, but she heard about it somehow, and she'd read about it, and she was worried that this young child, at that time I think he was probably two or three, had a disease. And the nature of the disease for the clinicians is progressive, and you can get these sort of small tumors along nervous tissue and the central nervous system, the brain, and it could, if you really had it, present a crisis at some time or another. And she was really persuaded that he had it. So I looked the kid over very carefully. Some of you know about there's a criteria, the diagnosis, there's no blood test for it. But I told her, you know, I've been a pediatrician 15 years. I, the kid's racial makeup, the, it just, I don't think so. I tried to reassure her because I thought that was the right thing to do. But she really, really pushed it. She insisted on seeing a specialist and then she had a full-body MRI of the child done to look at all the neurological tissues and central nervous system, peripheral nervous system. And it was normal, but she went to a doctor who specialized in neurofibromatosis, and she was, couldn't assure the family 100% that the kid didn't have the disease. So in about a year's time, they were off the field at home, and the reason was the child's health. That was the reason that was put forward. And I'm in another city, I'm not there, and it happened years ago, so I don't think I'm violating any confidentiality. But I was pretty certain then that what was really going on was terrible, difficult stress that happens over there, and probably a little bit of tension in their marriage, and especially anxiety in the mother, and that this child was sort of becoming the way we were expressing that, if that makes sense. I was speaking at a youth event last summer, and I saw the family again. And the little boy is now 10 years older, and he's perfectly healthy. 
Thank goodness, right? All right, but this is the Dr. House factor. Like, the reason people leave the field isn't always the reason you read in the church bulletin. And maybe sometimes it shouldn't be, but it's complicated. And part of it is being a missionary is really, really hard. It's very different than the postcard that we get sold on the front end, right? I mean, I think it's a good idea tomorrow. Dr. Stevens will give a call probably, I think, and people will come forward and stand up. But being a missionary is really difficult. And, and sometimes the anxiety and the pressure and the difficulties of that come out in, in the reported reasons for people leaving that situation are different than what might really be happening. So let's step back a second. How big is the problem of missionary attrition? The answer is that overall, it's about 5% preventable attrition rate per year. Right? And that may not sound like too much, but that means in your first term, you have about a 1 in 5 chance of not continuing. That's pretty high. Would you agree? I know in my med school class, if they told me that 5% of the people flunked out every year, I'd be scared. Because I know where I was in my class. Right? <laughs> so amounts to thousands of missionaries, even every year, if you take the global picture. And I don't know if it's an accurate number, but my friend Alex Galloway, who's responsible for missionary care for Church Resource Ministry, says that the average family, U.S. family, the investment is about $350,000 to get them on the field. It's a lot of money. Not just the money, but time and resources. So missionary attrition is a big problem. And it affects real people, people you know, people you love. Right, this is a med school style, style put you to sleep slide. But um, <clears throat> this is the opposite of, re, of um, re, attrition. This is retention rate. And the reason I put that up is that the remap information, which is eight years older than the remap two information, eight years older than the initial data, shows that actually attrition is worsening that our retention rates are getting lower. Less, less people are staying on the field, and that's even in the face of shorter terms of service. Many agencies have reduced their initial term from four years to three, for instance, or five years to four. So we're asking, in some respects, for less commitment, but agencies in general are retaining fewer of their missionaries. So preventable attrition rate, this happens to be the data for the International Mission Board from the Southern Baptists, and say what you will, these guys think hard about sending missionaries. And they were very helpful. The Baptists were very helpful in this. You can see that their attrition rate hovers around 4 to 5%. They have over 5,000 missionaries on the field. So a small number, but again, that represents over time hundreds, thousands of people. They look at this and they study the data and they try to, to react to the data appropriately. Okay. Different countries have different reasons for attrition, so we want to play the David Letterman top ten list here. This is, UD, this is United States data. The top ten reasons in, that are for preventable attrition in the United States. Somebody want to take a guess at number one? We're going to go, unlike David, we're going to go number one, not ten to, ten to one. Finances. Finances. Anybody else? Conflict with other missionaries. Conflict with other missionaries. Health. Health family. Communication with missionary to agency, missionary to team, all all important. Others? I hate the stinking agency. They're driving me crazy, right? Frustration with your – okay. Oh, yeah, i got to bribe everybody, everybody, five minutes just to stay here. It's driving me crazy. What else? Visa issues. Depression. Now, back to my story about my – neurofibromatosis patient, how many missionaries are going to say, yeah, we left the field because I was depressed? <laughs> now, you want the facts on clinical depression missionaries? It's huge, right? It ought to be. It's so common that it's, frankly, it's normal among missionaries. But we don't safely live in a place where first we go around for two years asking you for money, right? And then we say, it's really hard out there and I'm falling apart. and I'm, That's not what we do. All right, let's go through the list and most of the things you've called out. Anybody want to throw anything else in? All right, number one, according to the data and remap, is that children is the reason for leaving. Now, this could be a child is ill. 
often this is a child reaches a certain age and the decision is made that they need to be in a certain educational setting or other cultural setting. But that's numerically the biggest reason American missionaries leave the field. Change of job, I would not have thought of before went through this, but missionaries have jobs, right? And again, remember it's the agency reporting and sometimes there's reasons to spin the date a little bit, but sometimes that means somebody offered them a job in the U.S. and they took it. Health problems were still pretty high. Problems with peers, we heard something about that. You guys have heard that many times probably, I have at least, that some of the worst difficulties are intra-team, intramissionary conflict. Lack of home support came up. Much bigger problem in the newer sending countries than the older sending countries, but an issue for people. We sent a family to Afghanistan for five years, and after about three and a half years, many of their supporters just sort of disappeared. We had to do kind of a secondary support raising for them in the about two-thirds through their term to keep them out there. Okay, we got five more. Disagreement with agencies, sizable issue. Personal concerns, I have no idea what that means. I really don't. Marriage and family conflict. Maybe the first example I told you of the two young, the young married people in Indonesia would fall into that category. Poor cultural adaptation is at least the interpretation of some sending agencies for why some people leave. Remember that one, poor cultural adaptation. Elderly parents, and that's your top ten. Or at least that's the top ten that mission agencies report for U.S. missionaries. All right, more fun. Here's your first question, I think. Is preventable attrition more common in small mission agencies or large mission agencies? Let me rephrase it. Are you more likely to leave the field if you're from an agency that has less than 25 missionaries? Maybe it's a tighter group knit of people or you know more people. Or among the Baptists where there's 5,000 people all over the world, but they have a lot of infrastructure and experience. Attrition's more common in large agencies. Who agrees with Margaret? Who thinks it's small agencies? Who's not voting? <laughs> all right. The answer by a huge factor is smaller. Smaller agencies lose people far more commonly than larger agencies. I think I have a graphic here. Based on the number of missionaries sent, small missionaries, only no more than 10 being sent a year, and here's over 200, and it drops precipitously. So there, of course, are exceptions, and maybe your agency is small and you have a low attrition rate. But in general, if you're thinking about going with a, with a missionary sending agency, young missionaries to be, there's solid evidence that bigger might be better if attrition is what you're looking at. Why? Why, why, why do you think that might be true? Well, they do have the infrastructure, the member care, and, of their, and the experience. And the... So experience, I didn't tell you this, I don't have a slide for it, but older agencies do better than younger missionaries. Support, you said? Member care. Member care or, yes, sir? All right. He thinks that the more experienced larger organizations do a better job screening their, their candidates and selecting people who are more likely better screening. <coughs> training. Screening and training. Both. Good. <laughs> You're going to another continent, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's certainly true. Like, yeah, if you, I have six kids. You know, if you're fighting with one brother and that's the only one you got, that's a problem. But you can go fight with five others in my house. So, good. Anything else? Maybe you have a little more flexibility in a larger All right. That's a little counterintuitive. I think most people think the bigger and more bureaucratic you get, the less flexible you are. But maybe that's true. All right. Let's go to the next question. I hope we can read this one. All right, is attrition more common among pioneer and church planting missionaries, or is it more common among people who do, do development and support ministries? Let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. Pioneer work is going to a new place where you're starting out. Church planting, you're trying to plant churches in an unreached place. 
versus you're going to a place where the church maybe is established and you're going to help the church or you're going to work in a seminary or a Bible school or you're going to do some sort of support work. Intuitively, people would think that pioneering and church planning work is harder. Are you more likely to have attrition in doing that or in doing support work? Support. Who thinks you're going to drop out more likely if you're doing pioneer and church planning? Pioneer. Support. Non-voters. All right. Significantly higher in development and support missionaries. That is interesting. All right. Here's the question mark. And let me show you some data. Church planning is actually the one that has the lowest preventable attrition rate compared to relief support and pioneers. That really surprised me. So I said to myself, why? What do you all say? Because people who do pioneer work, they're more, I don't know. They're pioneerish. All right, so pioneer people are, they're kind of hardcore and they're, they're yeah, they're, they're more hard-headed, they're less likely to quit. It's theirs. Independent. A new thing, I don't have anybody telling me what to do, I'm the only knucklehead out here, right? Tangible results, so it's sort of a job satisfaction issue. Or tangible suffering. Better prepared. Okay. So this is a, a same answer as yours, I think, sir. Okay. Any other ideas? Yes, ma'am. Okay. The 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 energy and thrill that goes with something new and the beginning of something. Yeah, you're just adding on to, okay. Yeah, you're more crucial, more central. How about prayer? Hey. It's easier for the sending church to pray for those people who are seeing souls saved and someone who's doing electrical work on some uh, things. Did everybody hear this? I think that's a very good insight. That, And I, I'm the same way. We have some people in Sudan right now, and we're worried about them getting kicked out. And we're worried about them being depressed, and we're worried about, you know, when Brian goes off into Darfur, his wife's by herself, and we're praying, praying, praying for those pioneer people in these scary places. Now, I've got some other friends who work with Campus Crusade in China with students for two years, and I pray sometimes for them. But that's an established work. It's been going on a long time. That's a good insight. Let's keep rolling. Alex has got another question for you. Is attrition higher among missionaries sent to their own country or to other countries? So we send people out. The Presbyterian Church of America has a mission to the world, and they have a mission to America. You get it, right? You're more likely to drop out if you go to a place in America or you go overseas. How about overseas? You guys are starting to catch on. America? Yeah. Going to your own country, you're more likely to quit. It might be some of the same reasons, you think? I always, uh, always is a strong word, but doing our inner city work in Memphis and places like Memphis, it's cross-cultural. And when you're in the middle of it, sometimes we get a little grumpy because we think, like, we don't really get the, we don't, we're not viewed the same way as people who are in a, you know, in a more, I hate to word, use the word sexy, but, you know, in a, a place that's uh, scary and, yeah, exotic. Yeah, so maybe, maybe prayer is part of this, too. Memphis is plenty exotic, buddy, let me tell you. <laughs> All right. So we kind of talked about why. All right. I think this is the last Alec question. Is it, this is an interesting one, too. Is attrition higher among missionaries sent by churches or sent by agencies? Now, some churches, I imagine this one, you know, have the resources to send their own people and, and act as a sending agency. Our little house church in Memphis, we've done it both ways, but we tend to send people with an agency. Do you think you're more likely to come home sooner if you're sent by an agency? Or by your church? You ready? It's higher in agencies. Just the reason I have an asterisk there is because it's not much of a significant difference. But I would have predicted attrition would be much higher in church-sent missionaries. Okay. So we're changing game shows. I've only seen this one once, too. What will reduce missionary attrition more? I'm giving you three choices, and we're going to knock through these three things, and then we're going to be done. 
Is it better to screen people on the front end more vigorously and rigorously? You made that suggestion is important. Is that the most important thing? Is it more important to get them better pre-field preparation and training? Lastly, is it most helpful to get them better on the field support? Those are our three choices. Should we take a vote now before I show you some more? Let's take a vote now. So if you, and you have to vote, okay? Better, here's, the, here's your three choices. Better screening, better pre-field preparation, better on the field missionary support. Who thinks screening is the most important thing? One guy, <laughs> two, three, four, five. Okay, who thinks better preparation, pre-field preparation is the bigger deal? All right, that means if you're voting, lots of people think that better missionary care is the deal. All right, that's interesting. Remember your choices. We're going to first, um, oh, we did vote, good. We're going to talk about better on-the-field support. All right, so let me first show you what's out there. Again, these, all these are U.S. agencies. Here are the possible things that fall into this category. So field leadership, particularly having leaders in your agency who are on the same field in the same country that you are. That's one form of support. Pastoral care, people who move about on the field providing pastoral support to missionaries. That's one option. Having a job description, believe it or not, fits into missionary support. It's better, perhaps, that you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing there. On-the-job training is offered by many agencies, believe it or not. Having annual leave is almost universal. It really just comes down how much time are they going to pay. Is an agency going to allow you to be away and help pay? These are all part of support. Regular visits. Provision for children, pretty wide variability, all the way up to making sure that school is paid for and, and educational needs are met for kids. And having a team structure. So those are all categories that were studied in this remap study that I'm talking to you about. Letters or phone calls, last thing. And those are from home, right? Remember that this was in 1994, before Skype, before you could hit the hyperspace button and be anywhere in the world in a, you know, in a day or so. In a, I guess you could do that back then. All right, you're going to be shocked. But these are the only two things that there was statistical evidence that helped. Let me go back again. Didn't help. Didn't help. Kind of helped. Didn't help. Didn't help. Didn't help. No help. Uh-uh. That was the strongest one. Letters or phone calls. I didn't believe it. Okay, I thought, no way, because I voted with the third group when I was reading the book the first time. The third group is, according to the data, dead wrong. Each item on the list for agency support and supervision was analyzed and individually, and, sorry, analyzed individually to determine which items were the most important. The analysis shows a clear positive effect only for regular letters and phone calls and a marginal effect for on-the-job training. The same correlations were found in all agency size groups. Surprisingly, to say the least, the majority of the support items shown a negative effect, which means that a single, a single items, they were correlated with an increased rate of preventable attrition. Depending on how much, what percent of resources are spent on missionary care, you can see the attrition rates. And so if there's less than 1% spent on missionary care, there's a high attrition rate. You get to about 5%, and that's the lowest it gets. You keep pouring on the stuff, five-fold as much resources put into missionary care, you get basically no change in attrition. Wow. Same stuff from REMAP2. If an agency is using 5 to 10% of its resources, then their retention, this is the opposite of attrition, is highest. If it's nothing, then they have a lot of attrition, but you just don't see much change when you add lots of resources in. Uh-oh. All right. Let's talk about it. I have a couple of theories, but I've had weeks to think about this. 
especially the people who voted for this, to be the thing that would make the biggest difference. Why doesn't it make a difference? What are the possibilities? The data could be wrong. That's off the table. What else? Okay, did you guys hear that? It could be that you get all this missionary care and it makes people want home more. Have you ever gone to visit somebody in a tough spot? We used to regularly visit our, our friends in Afghanistan. And at the end, the last day of the trip, when we we're fixing to go back to America, our friends would say, oh, when you leave, it just makes me miss home so much more. Sometimes I wish you wouldn't come. They said that to us. I said, oh, thank you, Jody. <laughs> Any other ideas? All right, so this was the guy who spoke to us last night, my friend Chuck Cheatham. I asked him this question, and he said that in his experience, by the time good pastoral care is called into a situation, people are often so far gone that they've already made up their mind. And that might partly explain this, but I don't think it's an adequate explanation for the whole deal. But that's a possibility, that you have sort of a selection bias. The people who are getting the most missionary care are actually the people who are going to go anyway. Maybe they should have been screened better or they should have been prepared better. But it's still disconcerting. I want to tell you a story and try to make a point. This is the Rick Donlan theory that's being advanced to you, and you can reject it if you like. All right. Two high school friends. They're not missionaries. This is an an analogy, a metaphor. Guy on the left gets a scholarship, and he goes across the country to a new college. He doesn't have a car. His parents have limited resources. He's got a meal card. He's got a dorm room. He doesn't know anybody there. And he gets dropped off at Texas Christian University across the country from where he's from. And he is forced to go out of his dorm and make connections and meet people because he doesn't have any friends and he doesn't want to stay in his dorm room and he is pushed into the community of that university. By the time Christmas break comes, he's pretty comfortable. By the end of the year, he really wants to go back. He loves his new deal. His friend from New Orleans, that's my hometown, got a scholarship to play at LSU, which is 65 minutes from home. And he gets a dorm room there, but he doesn't know too many people, and it's just kind of easy to drive back to New Orleans and to hang out with his high school friends where he really had something going on. And he's still got the hometown honey girlfriend, right, with that connection there. And he is increasingly drawn back to what he's familiar with and less likely to engage at his university campus. And by the end of his year, he decides to move back to New Orleans and go to junior college there. Get where I'm going? We're in the year in the era of Skype. We did this at our house church. We put the computer up and we can see our Sudan missionaries and talk to them during church. And I can see in their eyes, like, oh, I miss house church. You know? You can get on a plane, you can be anywhere in the world. It may be that our technology and the smallness of the world actually hinders people enculturating into the place that they're sent and bringing people to check in on how well you're doing and having conferences where you get pulled out and all of the support that we think might be helpful may actually be, in a small way, hindering that enculturation. What do you think? Yes? Yeah? I got two votes. All right. All right. Some of you said better training and preparation. Good news, okay? The people who voted there, it's not like the missionary support that we just talked about. The bottom line with missionary support is a little is good, but too much is probably bad. Here, the more training you get, the better you're going to do if it's the right kind of training. The group of agencies with the lowest preventable attention rates had an average of 50% more training requirements than those with the highest ones. But... A lot depends on what you do and how you do it. So what does work? Anybody want to guess before I start pushing buttons? What sort of preparation is best going to suit you to survive and not return home early? Language. Language. What was it? So actual experience on the field. 
I'm sorry? Doing stuff in your community from the lips of babes comes wisdom. All right. So a past history of actually ministry experience in your own community. You're very wise beyond your years. Who said that? In the back. Tell us all what you mean by cultural adaptation. Okay, so the sister is preaching that um, that there is not a Walmart in Darfur, first of all, but which is true. But um, I think what I hear you saying is maybe even in our own world, you could go out and get out of your comfort zone and go to church where things are different than you. You can begin to experience cross-cultural discomfort. That is what you're certainly going to experience overseas. Great. Anything else? Doing it early. Doing it early. Before you're old and the concrete's hardened, all right? Not sure that's been studied, but I believe that's true. I find that's the case in recruiting people to work in the inner city, for sure. Young, foolish people will do it. <laughs> yeah. What else? Knowing and understanding where you're going. Okay. So, um, how would we sum that up? Uh, Preparation for what to expect. Yeah, that's good. Okay, anybody have any? Yeah. Oh, okay, I got to have both of these. Say that again. Spiritual preparation, spiritual warfare, those sorts of issues. Yes, ma'am. And then somebody said, knowing that you're called. Did everyone hear that? All right, we're going to hear that term come up again. All right, let me show you what definitely works, and nobody said this, and I wouldn't have guessed it. All right, although, to be honest, proper missiology study has some of the things that you all have suggested. Has anybody ever done the Perspectives on the World Christian Movement class? All right, you should go. I'm going to show you the website in a minute. If you're considering going overseas, it can be done for degree or not for degree, but it's an explanation of why we do missions from the Bible, a history of missions, the possible strategies involved in missions, issues of culture and crossing cultural barriers. People who got trained in missiology had lower attrition rates. Probably a lot of that has to do with having proper expectations. If you haven't had missiological studies, if you've never said the word missiological, and you're thinking about going overseas, that's something that pays off. Cross-cultural living we had suggestions from at least two people. Again, I'm tooting our own horn, but I'm telling everybody here, especially the possible candidates, working in a cross-cultural inner-city setting in the United States is excellent preparation for going overseas. I don't get my neighbors sometimes because it's a different community than I'm from. I'm afraid there sometimes. There's gunshots and bad guys and drug dealers. My mom's worried about me, right? I have to deal with tribalism and racism and all those sorts of difficult, messy things in my world right now. If you want to be a successful cross-cultural missionary, you're going to face those things, and you can learn something about it even now before you go. Lastly, in some of the subsets, especially those in smaller agency groups, theological studies had some benefit. My friend who does missionary care for church resource ministry says that he thinks it's actually more important than the data demonstrates. That if people are theologically sound, they're more likely to stick it out, particularly because of a theology of suffering. They understand, like Chuck Cheatham, Chuck Fielding said to us last night, that suffering is part and parcel of a disciple's life. All right, so if you don't know about it, perspectives.org is worth your investment. The course is offered across the country, different places. It may be offered in your city now. It's 16 weeks, and it's Missiology 101. It's excellent. If you are persuaded by my two-minute conversation and you're interested in doing healthcare among the poor in this country, the organization, the Christian Community Health Fellowship, can help you find places where healthcare is delivered to the needy in the United States. Chicago, Philadelphia, LA, Memphis. 
if you're a student with educational debt, why not pay off your debt in an underserved setting in the United States for two or three or four years as preparation? Getting cross-cultural skills that will make it more likely that you survive. Okay. Lastly. So that's all retrospective from this remap? Yes. Um, there was an initial assessment of data in 1995 directly afterwards, and then there's a follow-up study from 2002-2003. And I know you're young in Memphis, but yeah. any thoughts of prospectively saying if we give theological training and perspectives classes that they'll do better, or is this just bias that says these are people that thought enough about pre-training and that's what they're <clears throat> Well, um, I, I want to answer your question. All three of these things should and will be implemented in various ways in Memphis, and some of them already have been. But, yes, as one of the elders in our house church, I think that some of these things we're going to actually put as requirements. You're not going until you've done perspectives, and you're not going unless you've gone on a short-term trip and you spent some time and had your stress put on you and your junk comes out, because that's what happens when we get stressed. And then we see how you do and how your marriage does and how you do with all those things. So, yeah, this is intensely practical to me. Um, so, all right, better screening. Good news again. There are real benefits, real ways. It looks like you can reduce attrition, people leaving early, if you do better screening on the front end. I want to tell you a sad story. And, again, these pictures are just to remind me. In our small house churches, I think at the time this happened, we only had three house churches, there was a family that it were fairly new to our community. They didn't actually live in the neighborhood with us, but they came from another evangelical church and participated in our house church and seemed to be growing their faith. We didn't know them super well. We're getting to know them, and they decided to go spend two years with a well-known ministry that does outreach and evangelism among college students in China. And one of the reassuring things is they were going with another family that we were very well acquainted with, that we had confidence in. And the two families were going to do a year at least and maybe two years in China with this organization. The guy from my house church had been there only a few months when he began to have a sexual relationship with a Chinese graduate student. And it came out fairly quickly, and of course they put him on a plane and sent him home. But it was a mess, and they're divorced now. Okay, And I'm, I'm kicking myself still. We didn't know him well enough. Now, the agency he went with, they had a very careful screening process. I filled out a character reference form. Shows you what I know, right? But for whatever reason, people didn't get to the issues that later came out. And I spent a fair amount of time while he would let me, as he came back, debriefing about how it happened and what happened. And it became very clear that their marriage was very unhealthy, for instance. And there were other issues there. But we didn't think about screening people because we didn't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. Right? <laughs> we said, man, if somebody stands up and says, I want to be a missionary, it's my job to get them out there. And I think differently now. It's my job to make sure that God has called them and that they're properly equipped and they're, they're not going to crash and burn and make a mess. It's really hard, though. Maybe you've been in a situation in your church or somebody you know, and they step up and they say they want to be a missionary. You think... I don't know about that. I was in a church in New Orleans years ago when I was in med school. There's a guy who wanted to be a missionary, and the only job he could get in America was being Ronald McDonald at parties. Now, I like McDonald's, but that was, that was his job. That was the most he could do. When we first started dealing with the sending agency that most of our house church people go with now, the Southern Baptists, I was hacked at them, okay, because they make you go through so many hoops. And as I've studied this data, now I know why they make you go through so many hoops. Let's talk a little bit about some of them. We heard earlier about a call. All right. How do you determine that? You know, I really ask that question to some of these missionary people because everybody says it's huge, right? How do you know someone's had a real call? I feel like I've been marginally obedient to God over the years, but I've never heard God say to me specifically. When Chuck, Chuck 
fielding tells me sometimes this conversation, well, God told me to do this. I'm like, could I get on that email list? You know, could, <laughs> would you give him my number? Because that's not how, I don't hear God's voice. I don't know how many of us do, all right? Turns out what they do generally at these agencies is they put two or three or four people who've been on the field, who have experience, who knows what it takes, who have God-given, Holy Spirit-given discernment, and they listen to the people tell their story. And whether we like it or not, some of these people can say, that rings true, that sounds right, maybe it doesn't. It's a big deal. The call is a big deal. Personal character references, 93% of agencies try to get personal character references. Again, we're going to have a list here, and you're going to decide which ones probably do and don't help. Acceptance of an agency's doctoral statement. <laughs> the PCA lady told me that you got to go with the full Westminster Catechism to go with them. I thought, wow, that's good. Whole thing. People gripe about this sometimes. If you go with the Baptists, you can't smoke or drink or dance with girls, is what I hear. People get un- unhappy about that, but... Signing on to the doctoral statement is 94% of the time necessary, and they view it as a safeguard. Health evaluations, 85% of agencies do that. Wanting to know if they've had previous experience of church work. That was your answer, right? It's a good answer. This is huge here, too. Evaluation of candidates' marriage and or their, or their singleness. 76%. Communication and relationship skills. This is from Remap 2. This is out of place. High-retaining agencies put much more emphasis on their candidate selection. Calling, that's the call we talked about. Character, church experience, spiritual disciplines. Who brought that up? You did? Yeah. Spiritual disciplines and prayer support. That was your answer. Here's some more. Evaluation of leadership and or pastoral skills. We're getting fewer percentages here, right? These are just the agencies, whether they do or don't do it. I would have thought that would have been higher. Firm promise of financial support from their supporters. Only a little more than half do psychological testing. My friend at CRM says they put people through the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, Myers-Briggs. They do full-blown psychological analysis of people. Previous experience of missionary work. Ordination, or equivalent. Think that's going to help screen people in or out? Some, some agencies limit the number of children you can have, or they limit the ages of your children as a screening device. All right, so this is a little side. Now, I showed you 13 different things, and it turns out that if you do more than about five to eight of them, you don't get much return on your investment. So that is not much smaller than that. Probably, if you figure out the right six or seven things to do, you you probably do as well as anybody. All right, so that was our first screen. In your head, think of the ones that are going to be there after I push this button. Because if they disappear, the data says they don't help. Those are the things that seem to matter in reducing attrition the mystical nature of the call, whatever that means, health, previous experience, and looking deeply at people's closest relationships. If you're applying with a mission agency and they don't push you hard on some of these things, you should push right back. Because these are the things that they need to be asking you. And here was the second screen. I'm going to push the button. What do you think is going to disappear? The last one surprised me. The more theological education you have or the more education or equivalent, actually you're, you're more likely to be retained. You're less likely to attrit, as they say. Having money is always good. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, what that means is that <clears throat> I'm going to go with pioneers, but before they're going to even bring me in for the um, 
pre-field preparation, I've got to have 30% of my support promised. And before they send me out, it depends on the agency, I might have to have 75 or even as much as 100% of the pledges at least in hand before I go. The notion is so there's not uncertainty once you're over there about your financial well-being. Sorry about that. All right. Um, I didn't know where else to put this in here, so here it is. Sometimes agencies send out bad people. And if you have honest conversations with missionaries, a, a non-attriting, bad, a, a lemon, somebody who doesn't leave the field and they're really problem person, they can mess up a lot of lives and a lot of work. And so there's a growing, quiet agreement among mission agencies that they need to fire people. I don't know how well that's going to go over with the home congregation, right? But if we make a mistake, we see this in our business, if we hire somebody, we try to do it in good faith, and we hire the wrong person, the longer you leave a bad person in a job, the more havoc they're going to cause. And so we've got to get it in our mind in the culture of missions that sometimes, you know, somebody might be happier elsewhere. They might be happier back home. And that it might not always be the best thing to keep people out there. All right, so here are the things. If you're a potential missionary that you got to have if you want to keep your rate, your likelihood of staying on the field high. Again, this experience issue I think is huge. We talked about the cross-cultural training as part of the pre-field training, but if you can get cross-cultural training already when you're being screened, if you're an agency, I think that would be a really great thing to see in a candidate. All right, so if you voted for better on-the-field support, you were wrong. Remap 1, one of their summary statements, those agencies with the lowest preventable attrition rates believe that among the most important factors for stay in the field are ability to cope with stress, good relationships with supervisors and the mission agency, and regular financial support. Okay, they thought that was huge. When they looked at the data, eight years later, they added this. High retaining agencies put much more emphasis on communication with leadership as well as the home field. They have specific plans and job descriptions and documented policies. In particular, this is to your point, sir. They have a culture of prayer throughout the agency. I think if you voted for screening, which five of you did, that's the right answer. We need to do a better job selecting the right people, we probably would do better with 4,000 great missionaries instead of 7,000 not-so-great missionaries. <clears throat> Pre-field training and missiology and experience in cross-cultural living are perhaps, the, this is all Dr. House looking at the data, right? Perhaps the best preparation. If you want to be a missionary, learn about missiology and get some cross-cultural experience now. Missionary care, at least as it has been understood and practiced, is the least important. I think the notion, if you reflect back on some of the questions, the people who are taking the hard tasks, the pioneer work and the church planning in difficult places, they probably are self-directed, unwavering, committed, just hard-headed, that they are self-selecting to stick with it and to do well because they are doing harder things. They might need less missionary care. And again, our analogy of the two college kids should at least be reflected on. All right, much smaller points. Larger agencies tend to do better than smaller agencies. Doesn't mean smaller agencies can't do well. New technologies, this is the theory, and easier travel may hinder missionary maturity and success. And lastly, less may be more in the area of missionary support. Yes, ma'am. I'm trying to figure out how to word this. How does the mission agency 
agency address the cultural experience of our culture today, which is so instant, instant messaging. <coughs> the immediacy of everything that we do, which doesn't fly in a mission setting where it requires that press. Yes. It stays and perseveres. Our culture doesn't seem to have that grasp. I think that the people that are, you know, my parents' age and back, the World War II era, that, you know, this is what we do. We just stay with it. We stay in a job. That's right. Our whole life. Yes. <coughs> So the question, if you didn't hear, is how do you overcome the cultural uh, norms now that require uh, immediacy? People quickly, uh, millennials, people born after 1980, supposedly spend less than a year and a half on their first job would be an example. Um, There's an entire chapter in Too Valuable to Lose about this issue of generations, the so-called, I don't know what they call the people who lived through the Great Depression in the 30s and then World War II, they stuck with it. Attrition was you – you got buried on the field that you went to. Um, one of the authors says that before the mid-1960s, attrition wasn't an issue because you just didn't quit. And so those people are called the boosters, I think they called them. Then I'm in 1964, the year 45 to 64, the baby boomers. And and we have a little bit different. We're into specialism and other things. And then in the people, if you were born 1980, you have an even different, less connected view. How do we get people to stick in for the hard and long haul? I don't know. I can tell you that some agencies, for instance, in the issue of cultural adaptation, one of the agencies I talked to bring people in and for three days. They have them. They don't live in a refugee community, but they go into the refugee community in Georgia and they have cross-cultural experience with those folks. I mean, that's... And then they debrief. All right, I would frankly say that's probably pretty lame training for cross-culture. There are other people who will actually watch you interact for long periods of time. Some of these pioneer missionaries, they put you in camps and they make you stay basically camp for weeks and months at a time. So you learn the real basics. And you, I guess you can't get a text message every five minutes there, right? can't add ten new Facebook friends while you're out in the jungle. <laughs> Can you see Twittering? Killing a bird to eat. <laughs> it's a real issue. It's a real issue. The cultural norms between my parents and my generation and the younger people, it's huge. And I know that young people don't want to hear the old codger say, well, when we, it was harder back then and you got to hang with it, but it was harder back then and you got to hang with it. <laughs> it's a great question. I'm done. More, I would love, especially experienced missionaries, if they had comments or if people had other questions or anything else. Yes, ma'am. One of the things that they uh, pre-screen for is evaluation of marriage slash singleness. Yes. Yeah, it varies very widely. The question is, how do they evaluate, evaluate your marriage and your singleness? And so they, they do the old hot box thing. They talk to the wife away from the husband and the husband away from the wife, and they talk to them together. They, they figure out the stuff that might be her issues and his issues, and then they, they force them to, conf- to do it together, and they're watching the whole time. Some of it, a lot of it's all self-reported. You'd be, your Christian sensibilities might be shocked if you had to fill out a questionnaire that told you how many times you masturbated or looked at pornography or those kind of, I mean, they get down and dirty on some of that stuff. Some agencies get really deep and others a lot less deep. But I think in general, they want to really try to get a sense of how strong the connection is between husband and wife. They're especially concerned about the possibility that one of the two, as in the first example I gave you, is really on board and the other's just kind of faking it or not so sure. Because when you have that disparity, that, that often causes a big problem. But it, it varies from agency to agency. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. 
So the question is, how, how can 15-year-old data be really helpful for now? And it's a great point that the REMAP study has been a follow-through, so there's more longitudinal data, but more research needs to be done, and I think the questions clearly need to be sharpened, right? And attempts need to get drilled down on some of that information more. It's a great point. Is there data, like when missionaries get on the field, you know, some agencies, they live in one housing unit all together versus one of the block? Right. Yeah, I don't know about data about that. The question is, um, if you have the missionary compound where all the the Westerners live together and have their community, how do they do compared to the crazy people who go live in the middle of the Imok village or whatever? Don't know. I just wanted to say, Perspectives does have a booth in the exhibition hall. Oh, do they? Okay, great. They do better. So there's an answer to your, maybe an answer to your question. That people who, um, people who would be the, compared to my guy who, who has to learn his new university, who hit a field and they immediately try to embrace the culture and get down and dirty, that they do better than folks who, I feel this myself, like when I'm overseas, I want a Diet Coke, you know? I want a little piece of my world. What I really want is a Starbucks, but I can't get that sometimes, but... This notion of trying to keep your world together because you're being stressed by this new world around you and really what you need if you want to connect is to break down your world and get into their world as naked as you feel when you're doing that. It's past time. Thank you all very, very much. <laughs>